In August 1984, Mary Badaracco told her daughter she was ready to file for divorce from her husband of 14 years. After that day, no one has seen or heard from Mary. Were gaps in the early investigation the cause of Mary's case growing cold for the last 35 years? I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show and welcome if it's your first time listening. Before we get started, you may have noticed that I didn't put out an episode last week. I mean, I did. I put out a Fotis Dulos update. That was kind of a last minute thing. I didn't put out a regular episode and I was going to just kind of pass it off as a scheduled break, but I realized that wasn't me being honest. I sit here and I talk about how we need to take care of our mental health and be open about it. And then I wasn't actually going to be open about it when it came down to myself. So feel free to skip ahead a few minutes if you just want to get to the case we're talking about and not hear all this. So the reason I skipped an episode last week was that I needed a break. I needed a break from stress. We already talked about the stress of 2019, so I'm not going to rehash that. Well, I don't feel like I carried that stress and that baggage with me, I have to admit that it has temporarily reduced my resiliency. It's like when you have a cold, you might get a secondary infection because you're more susceptible. I'm like that right now, but with the cumulative effects of stress. Nothing happened in January that couldn't be chalked up to just life, but it was a lot of life. Sick kids, husband out of town, snow days, holidays off school, more snow days, more sick kids, a very costly car repair, husband out of town again. And since the holidays, I have had no more than two or three days a week to work on this podcast, my freelance writing, and Rusty Hinges. One week, I literally had one day. I was getting further and further behind, which was causing more stress. It was adding up and I was feeling it, but. I was pushing it down, pushing it aside, and just doing what I could to keep it together, one foot in front of the other, style coping. Then it was Martin Luther King Day. The kids were home from school and daycare because it's a day off, and I was behind on my to-do list, and my minivan needed that costly repair that day. And then my husband was leaving two days later to go out of town for six days. All of this was stressful, but it was going to be fine. Then I checked the weather forecast, and it was going to snow for half of the week. And it was for sure the kids were going to miss at least one day of school, and I just started stress crying over the weather, you guys. That's when I knew I had to figure out what I could drop from my to-do list to remain functioning. I believe that everyone needs to take care of their mental health, just like everyone needs to take care of their physical health. You don't need a chronic physical illness to know you need to eat right, get enough sleep, and occasionally move. Well, you don't need a chronic mental illness to know that you need to manage your stress. You need to assess your emotions, see where they're coming from, be a little self-aware. And my emotional responses are pretty good indicators of how I'm doing. Crying over a weather forecast is not normal for me, and it's a sign I needed to take care of myself. So I went to the store. I bought dinners out of the freezer section. I decided that laundry piling up is a valid lifestyle choice. I gave my older kids assignments on how they could help me while their dad was out of town. 
and I moved, putting out an episode to the next week's to-do list. And it worked. I managed to almost catch up on my backlog of work. My minivan got fixed. I made it to the live show with Generation Y, marginally prepared. My husband came home from his trip, and the world kept spinning, and I didn't sink. So I'm back in a much better headspace, and I'm ready to cover another case from my home state of Connecticut. This is the script I was working on when I decided to cover the Jennifer Dulos case instead, and this is the case of Mary Botaraco. Mary was born Mary Smith in August 1946 in Danbury, Connecticut, and grew up in a large family. She was one of 12 kids. When she was 16, she dropped out of high school to get married. After having two daughters, one right after the other, her husband left. Mary was left a pretty young single mom working odd jobs to keep things together. She eventually got a job at a bar where she met Dominic Badaraco, the co-owner of the bar. He was also recently divorced and had four children, one daughter and three sons. He was a charming guy. He had so many kids and seemed like such a great father. And he was financially stable. Not only did he co-own some bars and pubs in the area, he also had his own house sighting business. So in 1970, when Mary was 24, the pair married and they combined their families. Mary's daughters began calling Dominic dad, and from the outside, it looked a little like the Brady Bunch. Inside the home was another story. Dominic was abusive emotionally, physically, and financially. Even though Mary's girls called him dad, he would refer to the girls as your kids to Mary. And his temper would flare regularly towards Mary, towards his own children, and towards Mary's girls. It wasn't long before Mary wasn't able to hide this abuse so much. The bruises were visible, and she would reach out to friends when she needed somewhere to go. But she never stayed away. She always went back to Dominic. In 1973, three years into their marriage, we do have some outside documentation of the abuse. Mary was hurt badly enough to go to the ER. She later told people that she fell, but the medical record refers to her being battered. But even if we didn't have this medical record, we have the statements of her children, her friends, neighbors. This was an open secret. Mary did her best to shield her girls from Dominic. A few weeks ago, when I covered the Brianna Dennison case, I talked about how children witnessing abuse are experiencing abuse. Mary didn't want that for her girls, so if she knew Dominic was gearing up towards violence, she would send them to a friend's house or a neighbor's house to play. But the girls knew what was going on. They weren't oblivious. They would come home afterwards, and the house would be torn up. Their mom would have a bruise that they hadn't seen before. They knew what was going on. And they both report that they had also been hit by Dominic, both with his hand and with a belt. And I know that a fair number of people in the 70s and 80s did not see hitting a child with a belt as abusive. It was a normal form of discipline, one step more severe from spanking with the hand. 
Now, my husband grew up never being spanked, let alone with an object. So it's interesting to see his reaction to people our age talking about corporal punishment in our childhoods because it seemed the norm for so many of us, but it's not for him. So if it's not the norm for you, I understand if your initial reaction is to be horrified that Mary did not step in to stop her kids from being spanked with a belt if she was so protective of them. But it may not have seemed as out-of-line discipline to her because of the climate at the time. And honestly, some of you listening right now may still not think spanking with an object is out of line, but that's a conversation for when I launch a parenting podcast someday. Back to Mary and Dominic. The abuse in their relationship continued throughout the relationship, and Dominic also carried on affairs, some of which Mary knew about, but some that she didn't. I don't get the impression that she looked the other way. His cheating was a source of their arguments. Occasionally, Mary would take her girls and leave, but it seems like this was more to give Dominic time to calm down and protect herself in the immediate future. Because she didn't stay away, she didn't make plans to stay away. And how could she really? She had very little money of her own. According to her daughters, Dominic controlled the finances, including Mary's paychecks. He would dole out to her what he thought she needed money-wise. Mary couldn't save up anything to finance actually leaving and staying gone. Even if she got control of her paychecks, how was she going to come up with a deposit to get an apartment or the money to pay her car insurance bill, these big amounts you need right away, or just to buy things like dishes and soap and the staples you need for a kitchen or beds for her daughters? Dominic made decent money with his investments in local bars and his contracting work, while Mary generally worked jobs like a barmaid or a house cleaner where she didn't earn nearly as much as he did. She would do well in a divorce if she managed to get half the marital assets, but you don't get those on the day you leave. You have to wait until the divorce is final, and a contested divorce can be stretched out a year or two or even longer. So Mary stayed while the abuse and the cheating continued. But as the kids got older and the 1980s began, things seemed to be calming down for the couple. In 1982, Dominic bought a house in cash and in Mary's name. The house sat on about five acres of property in the small town of Sherman, Connecticut. Sherman, Connecticut is an hour from where I grew up, and I have never in my life heard of it before this case. It's just a little town of about 2,200 people in the 1980s. It's in the New Milford area, and it borders New York. The house was really nice, but it needed work, so they spent a year renovating the entire thing, and it was turning into a dream home for both of them. And in July 1984, Dominic's name was added to the house deed, so they now owned it jointly. Mary seemed happier and more settled. Dominic was treating his wife better, and he was actually being nicer to everyone, 
Mary's daughters, who had both moved out on their own by this point, actually started enjoying Dominic's company for probably the first time in their lives. And there were lots of reasons for the couple to be happy. They, again, didn't have little kids to take care of, which alleviates a lot of stress, but they had also become grandparents when Mary's daughter had a baby. Mary's other daughter and Dominic's daughter were both engaged and planning weddings over the summer of 1984, which they were all looking forward to. Mary had had her daughter so young that she had to grow up really quickly. But now she's on the other side of it, and she was in a position to just enjoy life without the stresses of raising children, and she was only 38. She was 38 years old, and her kids were already grown and out of the house, which is something I cannot relate to. But not having children to support also left her free to do something else. Divorce Dominic. Things had been going better in their relationship until Mary found out Dominic was cheating on her again, and this was it for her. She was at her breaking point with the marriage. In mid-August 1984, when her daughter Sherry was over for dinner, Mary told her she met with an attorney that day and she was going to file for divorce. This was six weeks after putting Dominic's name on the house deed. That same evening, while Sherry was still there, Dominic came home. Something about him must have made Mary nervous because she told Sherry it was time for her to leave, time to go, and it seemed very abrupt, very sudden. And this stuck with Sherry because it was so reminiscent of her childhood. She remembered her mom ushering her over to the neighbor's house when Dominic would come home in a bad mood. This reminded her of that. All we have for what happened next is Dominic's word. He said that he and Mary talked about ending their marriage and came to a financial agreement. He was going to give her a lump sum payout for her to walk away. Rather than dragging out a divorce and her suing for alimony or wanting interest in the home, or his business ventures, or any of that. She would just pack her things and go, and Dominic would give her roughly $100,000, which is more like $240,000 today. That is more than enough money at 38 years old, with no kids to support, to get back on your feet. According to Dominic, on August 20th, 1984, he left for work while Mary was sleeping on the couch. When he came home that evening, he was not entirely surprised to see that Mary had left him. He didn't expect her to do it quite that quickly, but he also wasn't surprised. She packed almost everything she owned and left while he was at work. But Dominic hadn't given her the money yet. Instead, she took cash and some valuables from various stashes around the house that more or less equaled what their settlement was going to be. A few days later, Sherry got a call from Dominic's daughter, Donna. Donna was the one who was also getting married soon, and she told Sherry that Dominic wanted them all to get together to discuss the wedding plans. Sherry's initial reaction was that this was odd. Why was Donna calling, not her mother? 
But Sherry went to the house the next day like she had been told to do. And when she got there, no one was home. Her mother's car was there, though. It was a 1982 Chevy Cavalier. It was parked in the driveway, but the windshield had been smashed in on the driver's side. After Sherry waited a bit to see if someone was going to show up, Dominic pulled in, and he told her that Mary had left him. As best as Sherry can recall, Dominic said Mary took money with her, but not in the sense that he offered it and she accepted it. Sherry was under the impression that Dominic was saying that Mary stole the money from different spots in the house and then took off. Dominic asked her to come by later to gather up the few odds and ends that her mom had left behind. But when Sherry showed up, there was very little left, very few things that belonged to her mother. Even the family photographs were gone straight off the walls. All of her clothes were gone, her jewelry, even her hygiene products. It really seemed like Mary did a lot of packing that day, but was it more than you could do in the time frame Dominic said he was gone? And then how did she move her stuff because her car was left behind? Now, Dominic told Sherry, don't tell anyone, not even her sister Beth, that Mary had left. He said he had his lawyer handling things. Sherry was still young. She was still somewhat programmed to do what Dominic said, so she agreed she wouldn't say anything. And she didn't, not even to her sister. I also wonder if part of this had to do with Dominic mentioning his lawyer and implying that Mary had stolen money. Sherry may have thought there could have been some legal implications going on and didn't want to mess things up for her mom. But regardless of why, Sherry went home and didn't say anything. Her sister Beth learned Mary was missing a little bit later when Dominic's daughter Donna had called her about something else and mentioned the separation. Now, Beth wasn't really surprised that her mother had left, just that her mother hadn't told her. She talked to Sherry. Sherry didn't know where Mary went. Mary hadn't contacted her. So they both kind of waited for contact to be made. On August 29th, 1984, nine days after Dominic claimed he had last saw Mary and 10 days since her daughters had last heard from her, Dominic filed for divorce, citing abandonment. Some sources made it sound like Mary had actually filed for divorce first before she disappeared, but I don't really think she did. I think she had gone and met with the lawyer, but I don't think anything had been filed yet. The Connecticut online court record search does not go back this far. Either way, the divorce proceedings were moving forward, and on August 31st, Mary's daughters reported her missing after not having heard from her for 12 days, which is the longest stretch they had ever gone without hearing from their mother. And by a wide margin, they usually talked to her multiple times a week and saw her at least once a week. When the missing persons report was filed, an officer did go to the Sherman home to investigate, and Dominic gave him the same story about Mary taking a bunch of money, packing her stuff, and leaving. He said all Mary left behind was her car, the keys to her car, and her wedding ring. 
The car was still in the driveway at this point with a smashed window when the police officer was at the house. This was a police officer who, according to one of Mary's daughters, was a friend of Dominic's. It doesn't appear that the car was searched at this time, and it certainly was not impounded. Dominic explained the window damage, saying that Mary had gotten into an accident shortly before she left. But it doesn't appear that this was followed up on in the early days of the quote-unquote investigation to see if there was an accident report or even an insurance claim to back this up. From those who saw the car, the window seemed to have been broken from the outside, pushing in and leaving glass inside the car. So what did Mary hit that came up on her hood and smashed her window? We have no idea. The officer decided on the spot that Dominic was telling the truth and Mary had simply left her husband. He walked away without searching the car, house, or the property. And with the police determining that Mary had left willingly, the case stalled. I mean, it wasn't even a case at this point because it was just a wife who left her husband. A few weeks after Mary was reported missing, her car was taken from the property and no one knows where it ended up. When the police officer had gone out to talk to Dominic, there was actually a woman named Joan and her two children living in the house. So we're talking days after Mary left, there's a new woman living in the house. Initially, Dominic said he was renting the home out to Joan, but he was staying with his sister. That appears to have been some type of cover because at some point after Dominic got his divorce judgment in May of 1985, he and Joan married. And as of this recording, they are still together. It was during the divorce hearing that Dominic talked about how Mary took the money as a settlement. Now he's not saying she stole the money, but that they had agreed on a settlement and she took everything from the house as her payment. And this certainly helped his case. It wasn't like he was asking for 100% of the marital assets because according to him, Mary took her share and the judge believed him. And he was given a divorce and awarded whatever was left of the marital assets, which included all the equity in their house. A year after the divorce was granted in 1986, a tip came into the police. The tipster was in the Federal Witness Protection Program because they were a former Hells Angel. For those who don't know, the Hells Angels is an outlaw motorcycle club. Many of their legal battles of recent years involve them suing people for trademark infringement. Though they are still considered an organized crime syndicate in the U.S., and they are banned in some European countries. It's just a little amusing that they also concern themselves with trademark violations. Anyway, this informant said he overheard another Hells Angels member talking about a hit being taken out on Mary Botaraco. He said the two men who killed her were Hells Angels members, Steve Kendall and Joseph Botaraco, one of Dominic's sons. Apparently, Mary had some incriminating evidence on Dominic that she was planning to take to the police, and Dominic wanted her gone. No idea what this information allegedly was. 
So this is in 1986. Mary had been missing and her case had not been investigated for over a year and a half at this point. Her damaged car was gone and a search of her house would be nearly pointless since it had surely been cleaned in the last year and a half. The tip is coming a bit late to be very useful, but at least some type of investigation is starting. And we'll talk about Joseph Badaruko in a little bit, but police decided to question Steve Kendall about his involvement. He was already in prison for something else. He refused to sit for an interrogation, but he did agree to take a polygraph, just specifically on the questions related to Mary's disappearance. He was asked if he knew Mary and if he knew Hells Angels members had killed her. He said no to both questions, and he failed on both for whatever that's worth. Sometimes we see police get polygraph results like this and decide they're on the right track, digging in deeper. In this case, that does not appear to be what happened. This tip did not move the case forward, and it appeared to have been dropped at some point. And it's not clear if it's because they didn't have any other supporting evidence or they didn't expect to find more evidence. Or it's possible they had other evidence that led them in a different direction, something more solid than an informant and a failed polygraph. But as the years are going on, what Mary's daughters are seeing is a whole lot of nothing. Sherry and Beth both were frustrated by what looked like a non-investigation into their mother's disappearance. They both agree. Mary certainly would have left Dominic, but she would not have left them and everyone else she knew. In late 1987, some pressure that Sherry and Beth were putting on police led to interviews of people close to Mary at the time she went missing. And what police heard were stories of the abuse Mary suffered from Dominic for the entirety of their marriage. Had they done these interviews right after Mary was reported missing, maybe they wouldn't have shrugged this off as a wife leaving her husband. The 1980s were a different time in terms of our understanding of the nuances around intimate partner violence, coercive control, and even emotional abuse. I know emotional abuse would often be downplayed. And I also know for a fact that if it was so bad, why didn't she leave? That was a regular question being asked in the 1980s. But even in the 1980s, we knew domestic violence literally killed people. A woman who was physically abused for 14 years vanishes, and her husband needs to be investigated. That was knowledge in the 1980s. Mary disappearing, that's not probable cause to arrest Dominic for murder, obviously. Believe it or not, the husband isn't always the killer. But Mary's disappearance is cause for an investigation. So throughout the late 1980s, Sherry and Beth had this dedicated letter-writing campaign to the police and to lawmakers begging for Mary's case to be investigated as a homicide. They got the attention of then-state representative Lynn Taberzak, and she agreed with Mary's daughters. She managed to get the police to change the case from missing persons case to a homicide. 
And thanks to her work, Tabersack began getting threats. She was warned not to pursue the Mary Badaracco case. She even had a brick thrown through her window. Someone was trying to scare her off. But she gave zero ducks. She stayed on this. She got a reward of $20,000 posted in 1999. The reward was raised to $50,000. She was not letting go of this. So let's go back for a second to what that informant said about Mary being murdered by Hell's Angels and naming the two people, one of them being Dominic's son, Joseph. I cannot find any media report of an interrogation of Joseph. Through his attorney, he has denied not only involvement in his stepmother's disappearance, but he has denied that he was even a member of the Hell's Angels. But there is an incident in his life that made people wonder how far he would go for his father. He worked for his father for a number of years, and in 1989, he was arrested for arson after he hired two men to firebomb a bar owned by a competitor of his father's. He was convicted and sent to prison in 1990. He didn't serve a ton of time and was released. Now, this incident does not prove circumstantially or otherwise that he was involved in Mary's disappearance. It just doesn't. But this incident does come up, like I said, when we're talking about how far Joseph would go to protect his father when he felt his father needed it. A year after Joseph's conviction, Mary was declared legally dead. No one had heard from her in seven years. Mary's daughters were, by this point, no longer those naive young women intimidated by their stepfather that they were when Mary disappeared. They were now experienced at lobbying politicians and speaking with law enforcement. In 1993, Beth filed a Freedom of Information Act request to get a copy of her mother's case file. With unsolved cases like this, it is really at the police department's discretion what, if any, documents they will turn over. In my experience, if you get anything at all, it is generally the initial police report and the 911 call if there was one. These are considered, generally speaking, public record. But to get the investigative documents about tips or interviews, that's less common. And when you do get them, they will be often redacted. I think I've told the story before about when I got a report from a search warrant. It listed where the search took place, but every item seized was redacted. The item name was, but not the quantity. So I know they took one of something and they took three of something else. No idea what. It was three pages of this, three pages of documents that had all the actual information redacted. I don't know why they didn't just deny sending it to me entirely. Anyway, Beth was hopeful to get something out of her request. And one day, an envelope showed up in her mailbox. It contained the 1986 to 1988 portion of the file. And this is the part that covers the tip from the Hells Angels informant, naming Joseph Badaracco and Steve Kendall. 
This was when she and Sherry first learned about it. Now, later, the same document showed up at her house, but this time they were redacted, as you would expect. That was Beth's actual FOIA request response, not the earlier file. Someone had copied the information about the tip and secretly got it to Beth, and no one knows who it was. It had to have been someone close enough to have access to the file, and that person, for some reason, wanted Mary's kids to know the full, unredacted details of that tip. In my opinion, and my speculation, if you will, it's someone from the investigation who thinks the tip needs to be followed up on more. Because otherwise, why would they give it to the very outspoken family? The next major tip that we know about came in 2003 when someone called in to say a man named Ernest Doschenhausen may have Mary's car buried on his property in Newtown, Connecticut. So some background. Ernest lived in Newtown in the 1980s. He was an associate of either Dominic or one of his sons or both. He had moved away from his Connecticut property in the intervening years, but he was questioned about burying cars on his property. He first denied it, but then admitted he had done it just a few times and all in the mid-1980s. He was asked about Mary's car specifically. He said he buried a Cavalier once, which matched the make and model of Mary's car, but he remembered it being a different color than Mary's car. He denied having any specific knowledge about Mary's disappearance. Mary's daughters were wondering if Mary's car had been buried and possibly with her body inside. That would have solved two problems for her killer. It would have gotten rid of her body and any evidence that was in the car. But the car may have just been hidden because there was evidence in there, not necessarily the body. The smashed window made her daughters wonder if whatever happened to their mother happened in that car. In September 2007, police dug up Ernest's former property and a few cars were found, none of which were Mary's. But Ernest was arrested anyway in April 2008, and he was charged with interfering with a murder investigation. This stems from when he was asked about the cars buried on his property. He initially told the police the wrong spot. Ernest was eventually acquitted of these charges. But in the course of these legal proceedings, it came out that Dominic Badaracco was the prime suspect in his wife's disappearance. I think police still thought there might be something to this because in September 2008, they used ground penetrating radar to search a different area in Connecticut. It was somewhere that Ernest used to work. As far as anyone can tell, nothing was found no more buried cars. In 2010, the state's attorney asked for a grand jury to be convened to investigate Mary's disappearance and Dominic's role in it. Mary had been missing for 26 years at this point. In Connecticut, grand juries have not been common since the early 1980s when the law changed. 
prior to 1983, a grand jury had to indict on any case where the punishment was life in prison or the death penalty. Connecticut does not have the death penalty anymore, but it did at the time. But in 1983, they changed this law. Now there only needed to be a probable cause hearing to move forward with the trial. Grand juries in Connecticut are now investigative, and they're headed by a judge or a panel of three judges. To convene an investigatory grand jury in the state, the state's attorney basically goes to the court and says, look, we've done everything we can, but we can't get what we need without the power of the courts. The judge appointed in this case was Justice Arthur Haddon. What he could do that the police couldn't do was basically subpoena people. While the witnesses could still invoke their right against self-incrimination, they couldn't just flat-out refuse to talk like we can do with the police. Even if we're not incriminating ourselves, we don't have to talk to the police. But with the subpoena, short of incriminating yourself, you will face contempt in court if you're not answering. Like traditional grand juries, the proceedings are sealed, so we don't have a lot of information about what happened over the 18-month investigation. We just have little bits and pieces, like Joseph, who's Dominic's son, was subpoenaed, but he didn't show. A former babysitter for Mary and Dominic's combined six children testified. She was in her 90s, so it's good to get her testimony on record. Dominic did not testify, which is not surprising, since they were investigating him. He was publicly named a suspect in Mary's murder during Ernest Dauschenhausen's trial, and he couldn't be compelled to testify under his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. While this investigative grand jury is going on, in February 2012, Police did search Dominic's Sherman home, where he still lived. A piece of machinery that can dig up concrete was seen on the property during this search. This was a five-acre parcel of land with outbuildings and a lot of ground to cover, but in the end, nothing was found. Eventually, Justice Haddon determined that there was not enough evidence to charge anyone in relation to Mary's murder, which obviously was incredibly upsetting to her daughters. If this wasn't enough evidence to go to trial, their worry is that there will never be enough evidence. What more can they find unless they find her body? And they were also disheartened because they had been told through the process that an arrest was anticipated. What they didn't know was that an arrest was to come, but not for murder. Instead, Dominic was charged with felony bribery. So let's back up. Let's rewind all the way to the start of the grand jury investigation. Dominic knew he was the main suspect. Everyone knew he was the main suspect. That was no secret. But the grand jury investigation was secret. On October 18th, 2010, Joan Perone, who is the daughter of Dominic's wife, Joan Badaracco, was subpoenaed to testify in front of the grand jury. And that's around the same time. Dominic started asking his former business partner, Ronald Richter, about it. Richter had a close friend who was a judge, Robert Brunetti, and Dominic thought Richter could get information from Brunetti. 
It's likely Dominic found out about the grand jury when his stepdaughter was subpoenaed. Richter was up to making this phone call to Brunetti, largely because he wondered if he himself would be called to testify. So he called Brunetti one morning and asked if there was a grand jury investigating Dominic. Brunetti said he didn't know, but he agreed to find out. Brunetti said he never actually tried to find out anything, but he did happen to hear about the grand jury while he was having lunch with other judges one day. So when Richter called him again a few days after the lunch, Brunetti told him about what he had just coincidentally overheard. This all happened in the last couple weeks of October. On November 17th, Dominic borrowed Richter's phone and called Brunetti himself at 7.40 in the morning. Dominic told Brunetti that he needed his help and Brunetti said there was nothing he could do. Then Dominic said it's worth 100 Gs and Brunetti interpreted this plea of help and $100,000 as a bribe to interfere somehow with the grand jury. Being a judge, Brunetti immediately hung up the phone and the next day, November 18th, he reported what he believed was an attempted bribe to the proper authorities. Brunetti met with investigators that afternoon, and he agreed to call Richter while they were recorded. Brunetti told Richter about the attempted bribe, and Richter said Dominic had tried to get him to call Brunetti the week before to offer him something. Now, this conversation between Brunetti and Richter discussing the bribe was close, but not quite a smoking gun. So Brunetti then called Dominic to set up a meeting to discuss things. And of course, this is at the request of the investigators. He called on December 2nd, and the meeting was set up for the very next day, December 3rd. But as Brunetti was driving to the meeting, and I imagine all wired up, Richter called him and said Dominic wasn't coming, and Dominic did not make that meeting, And as far as we know, he did not contact Brunetti again. But around the same time this is all happening, Dominic cashed out some retirement accounts and put the money into his wife Joan's account. It ended up being a total of $185,000 just two days before he called the judge. Then in December, Joan transferred the money back into Dominic's name. So two days before offering the judge $100,000, Dominic had liquidated some assets. It sounds fishy, and yes, it sounds like a bribe. But Dominic and Joan said that's not what it was for. They were worried Dominic would be arrested, and they wanted to have the bail money on hand so he wouldn't spend that much time locked up. The money Dominic offered Brunetti was not a bribe. It was for legal fees because he was asking Brunetti for legit legal help, nothing shady, not a bribe, not hiring him to interfere. Now, $100,000 is a pretty incredible retainer. Any attorney who can get it would probably take it if this was a murder case. But Dominic hadn't been charged, arrested, or indicted. So it was a little early to start paying $100,000 up front for a little bit of legal advice. So Judge Brunetti obviously interpreted this as a bribe, 
and so did the state. Dominic was initially charged with offering an illegal gift, conspiracy, and bribery, but the first two charges were dropped before trial. Dominic pleaded not guilty to the remaining bribery charge, and his bail was set at $150,000, which he had no problem coming up with his percentage. When his trial was held in June 2013, Dominic's attorneys called Dominic's ear, nose, and throat specialist. Dominic was in his 70s at this point and being treated for hearing loss. The ENT said that this could have caused the whole issue on the phone because hearing loss can cause dizziness, confusion, and communication issues. So what Dominic was saying and interpreted by Judge Brunetti may not have been accurate. But this was not terribly persuasive because on June 27, 2013, Dominic was found guilty of bribing Judge Robert Brunetti. He was sentenced to seven years in prison, but he served about three. He was released for good behavior and showing remorse. He was considered having a low risk of reoffending, and my guess is because he wasn't going to need to bribe any judges because the murder investigation was not going anywhere. Dominic will be on monitored release until 2023. He'll be well into his 80s at that point. Brunetti was accused of misconduct for confirming the grand jury's existence to Richter and Dominic after he had heard about it at that lunch. The panel that investigates judicial misconduct voted not to act on this matter because of a technicality. The statute of limitations had run out. They only had a year to act, and by the time Dominic's trial was over and the accusation kind of made it through, the year statute of limitations had run out. In the case of Mary Badaracco, we can see so clearly how this was destined to become a cold case when her disappearance was not taken seriously from the start. Evidence either in her car or her home was gone. Now, let's say she really did leave Dominic. She left with someone because she didn't take a vehicle, so she left with someone. What if that person did something that caused her harm? Who was it? We have no idea. We could not even begin to identify that person at this point because they didn't investigate it. They didn't investigate whether it was a possibility a coworker, a friend, a secret boyfriend, anyone picked up Mary Badaracco that day. A taxi. We don't know because they didn't investigate it. So if Dominic did this, he's clearly getting away with it. If someone else did it, they will also get away with it. Because an officer decided to believe that Mary was just a woman who abandoned her family rather than believing her daughters who said that would not have happened. If alive today, Mary Badaracco would be 73 years old. At the time of her disappearance, she was 5 foot 7 inches and 145 pounds. She had surgical scars on her abdomen and a scar on her thumb. She also wore front dentures. If you have any information about Mary's disappearance, call the Connecticut State Police at 860-685-8000. Thank you for listening to Crimelines. You can follow me on Facebook by searching Crimelines Podcast, Twitter at Crimelines Pod, and Instagram at Crimelines True Crime. Feel free to follow my personal Instagram at Charlie in KC. 
You can also find the show on Patreon and Himalaya Plus, where I post early and ad-free episodes, as well as a monthly bonus episode. Crime Lines is produced by Basement Fort Productions, LLC. Visit our website, basementfort.com, for more information, including the sources for each episode. And while you're at it, go listen to Rusty Hinges, a comedic, mystery, true crime, and history show hosted by the one and only Lars and written by me, Charlie. 